I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Offscript. My name is Stephen Edgington. How do you win the culture war? What lessons can we learn from Soviet dissidents? I sat down with Dr. Jordan Peterson to discuss these questions and more. Thank you very much, Dr. Peterson, for joining us. My pleasure. Has the right lost the culture war? We'll see. We'll see. Um, the right lacks vision. They play a rearguard game. Um, they don't have a compelling story to tell young people. And because they're conscientious, conservatives are conscientious, it's easy to hoist them on the petard of guilt. And the psychopathic narcissists of the radical left are unbelievably good at that. And so the, the conservative types are set back on their heels in a big way, and they don't know how to articulate their own principles. Partly because, like, if you're a conservative, you don't really articulate your principles. You just go about your business, right? You think, well, we'll just do things the way they have been done if they're working, and we'll go attend to our business, and we won't think too much conceptually, and we'll, you know, act practically. And so if you go listen to the Republicans, for example, I went to the Republican Governors Association meeting, and it, it wasn't inspiring, but the governors would present their policies sort of at the level of practical intervention. They're very practical people, and that's fine, except it doesn't work well against the messianism of the left. So the conservatives are in a position where they just get dragged towards the left one step at a time, and they're, they're also terrible strategists. So, for example, in the United States, the education system, the public education system, eats half of the state budgets. Half. In New York, it's $30,000 a year to educate the typical student. So you imagine that means they're spending near a million dollars a year to educate the typical class of 30, to not educate the typical class of 30 people. It's just beyond comprehension. 99% of the donations that are made by the teachers union politically go to the Democrats. And the bloody Department of Education, the faculties of education, have a hammerlock on teacher certification, right? So they have the worst students who go into education for the worst motives, and then they have the worst professors and researchers teaching them. And the faculties of education have done nothing but damage for the last 60 years, and the Republicans are too daft to notice that they've turned the entire culture over to the faculties of education. So it's no bloody wonder the conservatives lose. Like the strategists, they're 10th rate, and they're not visionaries. Now, they have traditional right on their side, and that's a big deal, but you know, that can be overthrown by assiduous effort on the part of the radicals and especially the psychopathic radicals. They thrive in chaos, so they're more than willing to turn the whole apple cart upside down in the hopes that they'll be able to scrounge among the runes and dance in the flames. It's this issue of how to fight back against this authoritarianism that I'm curious to talk about for this next hour or so, maybe longer we'll see, but um, 
One issue recently has been debanking. So in Canada, uh, a couple of years ago, in, during the trucker protests, you saw truckers um, whose bank accounts were closed down. They were removing money. Yeah, we money. pioneered that here. Yeah, in absolutely. Well, I think the Chinese probably pioneered it, well, and then it uh, could be the Canadians took it. Took at it least up. among democratic countries. Well, exactly. And um, in the UK recently, Nigel Farage has had issues with certain uh, yep. banks refusing to offer him services. Yep. Other politicians on the right. Um, have had the same thing. And the Conservatives have said in the UK, you know, they're warning the people who are celebrating this, this could happen to you. Those are the useful idiots. The useful idiots always think, this will never happen to me. You see this in the dead with the Democrats in the US. So I just interviewed Robert F. Kennedy, who, Jr., who in principle is a Democrat. So they took down the interview. And that just shocked me because it's a presidential campaign. And the lefties squawked and moaned and bitched for like three years about Russian collusion, all of which turned out to be a complete bloody lie because they were interfering with the election. And now YouTube can censor a presidential candidate mid-election and there isn't a peep from the left. And the reason for that is they think, well, Kennedy's not a real Democrat without noticing for a second that the definition of real Democrat is going to get increasingly narrow as we move forward. And that's already happened, you know. And I tried for years talking to the Democrats of probably three dozen senators and congressmen alike always asking them the same question. I asked Robert Kennedy this too. When does the left go too far? And to a man or woman, they were either unwilling or unable to answer that question. And so, well, so here we are with this increasing, um, the increasing normalization of censorship and cancelling. And this, by the way, is also a technique that's used by dark tetrad types, right? Um, it's the female equivalent of antisocial behavior, right? So men who are antisocial tend to use physical aggression, but females who are antisocial tend to use reputation destruction and denigration, gossip, and behind-the-scenes maneuvering. And that's unbelievable. Now, men can do that too, and will, and do, especially online. But that's enabled by the, by the corporations, you know, the media corporations who, who are in control of social media communication. So, yeah, people think... Well, as long as it's only happening to Kennedy. It's like, have it your way, dimwits. Now, this culture war, so-called, has been going on for a long time now, fairly long time. You've been at the centre of it for, for years and years and years, and you've really experienced some terrible abuse, and, uh, and really, I don't know how you went, you know, went through all of that and, and came out as you are today. When you look back to the Soviet Union, other authoritarian regimes, obviously there were certain dissidents within those regimes, and I want to talk about them and how they coped with some of the most terrible experiences. Now, obviously you're not, you're not in a gulag, you're not, you're not in Auschwitz, so you know, there's this kind of different level, isn't there? But um, what do you do when you know that things aren't going to get better? So let's say you're a Soviet dissident and there's just no hope. Do you survive? Do you fight? What do you do in that situation? Well, everything you do in life is a matter of faith. And why would I say that? You know, the atheist materialist types, the skeptics will say, well, faith just means that you believe in things that aren't there. It's like, that isn't what it means. That's, that's a 13-year-old critique of religious belief. A, wise, a smart 13-year-old's critique of religious belief. It means that you... You stake your fate on some set of propositions. Now, the thing is, is that you do stake your fate on some set of propositions because you have to act in spite of your ultimate ignorance. So in the final analysis, you have to move forward in ignorance. 
and you move forward in ignorance by assuming the utility of either a stable set of principles or and they, there can be alternatives or by wavering well here's one principle say what you need to save your skin in the moment or to gain advantage and that means that you have faith in the power of deception it means that you have faith in the power of the lie right right well we know who the eternal ruler of the kingdom of the lie is or you can have faith in the truth and that means to have faith in the truth means that you act in accordance with the assumption that whatever happens if you tell the truth is by definition the best thing that could possibly happen and that means independent of the short-term consequences for you now you're stuck with that anyways because if you decide to lie you're making the assumption that escaping scot-free or obtaining an undeserved advantage will pay off over the long run all things considered and you have no evidence for that at all you know and everyone knows this you can do something stupid to get out of a jam and get away with it but the chickens come home to roost and virtually everyone knows that so you're going to evince faith in one strategy or another or you're going to lie sometimes and tell the truth other times and i wouldn't recommend that at all because all that does is make you one confused person so you're playing both ends against the middle when christ comes back in the book of revelation he says the worst form of hell is reserved for the people who play both ends against the middle who sit on the fence right so that's worth knowing and so if you are wise and you have any sense and a certain degree of courage then you say what you have to say and you you let the devil take the hindmost and so that's what you do if you're a dissident you you make your bloody decision and i've seen this i i just talked to Douglas Murray about this this week you know about because Murray is notable for his courage and courageous people are actually quite rare uh much rarer than i even thought even though i knew they were rare i didn't know they were as rare as they are but Murray says what he thinks and to hell with the consequences so to speak but he was also convinced that there is no better path forward than saying what he thinks and we took that apart to some degree i mean first of all if you say what you think what happens to you is your happening if you engage in a lie that's not you god only knows what it is and what you're serving so if you lie to get your way it's not your way that you get it's the way of the lie and if you think that's a good idea go try it and then you think well what's your evidence that's a good idea have you ever lied to yourself and have that work how about you lie to your intimate partner you think that's going to work out or your family members or you lie to your business partners or your customers that's going to work is it who thinks that no one thinks that people will still do it and they'll pretend that it's okay but no one with an iota of sense ever thinks that that no one says to their child well you know son the best way forward in every situation is to just figure out what the other person wants to hear from you and tell them and if you can lie to get yourself out of a jam well what the hell you might as well do it because that's what sensible people do nobody says that you know people might act it out but no one believes it and it is a matter of belief so if you're a dissident you say what you think and you think and i think you know i could either have a false reality on my side or i could have 
the closest approximation to the truth that I can manage. Yeah, I'll pick the latter, thank you very much. And if that means I have to stand up against my idiot governments, like, I'm way more afraid of the lie than I am of Trudeau. But just looking throughout history at some of those dissidents in the Soviet Union, for example, and one of those people that you very much promote and have made far more well-known, I think, among many younger people is Solzhenitsyn mm -hmm. and you know, his famous book, The Gulag Archipelago and everything else. Why do you think so few people in the West know about these dissidents in the Soviet Union? Well, because our education system in the West has been gripped by the delusion since the Second World War that authoritarianism was a purely a right-wing phenomenon which is, of course, to call that delusional, you know. There was Stalin, there was Lenin, there was Mao, there was Pol Pot. I mean, how many goddamn examples do you need? So obviously there's left-wing authoritarianism, but the game on the left is that, well, that doesn't really exist, or that was a misapplication of a perfectly functional theory. I asked a friend of mine, a Jewish guy, why so many Jewish people in the Soviet Union were attracted to communism. And he said, because it offered the possibility of universal brotherhood. You know, and that, that's the difference between, say, fascism in its more explicit forms and communism, is that communism at least says we could all be brothers, right? And that's an attractive doctrine. And I suppose at the time of the Russian Revolution, it wasn't self-evident that that idea was doomed to failure. Now, it's bloody well self-evident now, if evidence means anything at all to you. But... There's that attraction in the communist doctrine of equality, which is sort of what we want in our families, and then universal brotherhood, which is a paradisal dream, I suppose. Um, of course, in the bowels of the communist conceptual structure are policies that are absolutely 100% murderously counterproductive. But they sound good, too, like from each according to his ability to each according to his need. You know, it sounds paradisal. It means, well, everybody could have their needs met. Of course, you instantly entangle yourself in, well, what is a need and whose need is deemed paramount? And that's complete bloody hell. And then, well, who defines ability? And how do you know when someone's contributing to the limits of their ability, right? Because they can still stand up. So, you know, there, there are these glossy attractive slogans, slogan by the way, that's derived from two Welsh words, slueg and garum, and that means battle cry of the dead. Right, so these, these slogans that appeal to people who know nothing, who are thoughtless, who are motivated to some degree by their compassion, in the case, let's say, of the useful idiots, and, and then motivated by the desire to use compassion as a camouflage by the more psychopathic types, but it sounds good, and the left can claim well, you know, it was a really good idea, and look at all the terrible things capitalism does. And capitalism does concentrate power and wealth in the hands of fewer and fewer people, which it does. But so does every other economic system ever invented or discovered. So it's not, you know, attributable to capitalism. And so that combined with this promise of universal brotherhood and the desire of the radical leftists to overthrow the capitalist endeavor means that the faculties of education produce teachers who are 
who know nothing about what actually happened in the 20th century because they don't know anything about anything at all and even if they did know would be inclined to downplay it or to excuse it with you know hand waving like well that wasn't real communism so let's focus we've got the dissidents on one hand who are very very rare in the system but what about the majority of the population and let's focus on them for a moment mm-hmm. particularly in the soviet union maybe you can talk about other authoritarian regimes in the 20th century as well but how did the majority of the population react to say soviet propaganda maoist propaganda nazi propaganda well they, they and what was they the form- aim of that propaganda they formulated it and propagated it and and lived by it and and distributed it like it's a misapprehension we we like to think that totalitarian systems are ruled by a sort of singular top-down tyrant hitler stalin lenin it's like no a totalitarian state is ruled by the lie and the lie is the principle of governance and everyone who lies is complicit in maintenance of the state and so you know the soviet joke we pretend to work they pretend to pay us and so the a totalitarian state isn't the freedom loving masses pining for uh deliverance out of the desert but oppressed by the thumb of stalin it's every single person lying about absolutely everything to themselves and everyone they love 100% of the time and so and sometimes that lie is just silence so i've been looking at the book of jonah i'm going to open my new book with this chapter so jonah as far as we know is just minding his own business and then here's a voice it's the voice of conscience because that's established by this time in the biblical corpus it's the voice of conscience and it says you know that city Nineveh that's actually a city of foreigners by the way and enemies of the israelites so not a city that Jonah would necessarily be uh sympathetic towards um or vice versa god says you know that city Nineveh and and Jonah says yeah yeah uh well they've fallen off the rails in a serious way and i'm thinking about taking them out and so i want you to go there and tell them of my intentions and of their transgressions and jonah thinks i don't give a damn about the inhabitants of nineveh they're the enemies of israel anyways and that's a city of like 120,000 people and why the hell would they listen to me and if i go to nineveh well that's going to be a very difficult voyage and the probability of a dismal end for me is very very high and so how about no so he jumps on a boat and goes in the opposite direction and uh, as anybody sensible would and as most people always do and so that's fine except now the storms come and the waves start to rise and the wind starts to blow and uh the ship is in danger of capsizing and so that's what happens when you hold your tongue when you've been told to say something and so the so- sailors who are rather superstitious lot think there must be someone on this boat who isn't in the good graces of the gods they serve and so they start to go through the passenger list and ask everybody and Jonah admits that he had a direct commandment which he broke and that he's the guy to blame and so the sailors have to throw him overboard and they don't actually do this out of cruelty they do this out of necessity and so well so now Jonah has run away from his conscience and he's put the ship in danger and now he's drowning and you think well that's pretty bad cuz he's going to die 
But that's not bad enough, because the next thing that happens is a creature from the abyss itself comes up from the bottom of reality and takes him in his jaws and takes him all the way down to hell. And it is hell. He's three days down there, just like Christ hearing hell, right? And there are explicit references to the bottom of the ocean being hell in the book of Jonah. So this isn't my imagination. And so what does that mean? It means if you hold your tongue when you have something to say, not only do you put everyone else in danger on the ship, and not only do you end up like in a place where you might die, but then something will happen to you so terrible that you'll wish that death would have taken you. And so now Jonah's at the bottom of the ocean, baking away, because he didn't say what he was called upon to say, and he repents and says, all right, you know, I've learned my lesson. Now that I've been in hell itself, I'll go to Nineveh as you commanded. And so the whale goes up to the shore and spits him out, and away he goes. And then he goes to Nineveh, and he tells them what he has to tell them, and they actually repent, oddly enough, and don't destroy him. Maybe because he has the courage of his conviction by this point, and God spares the city from destruction. Well, that's what that story means. So you hold your tongue when you have something to say at your peril. And that's a sin of omission, right? And people are, easy, are willing to pass that off. You know, why do I have to put my neck out? It's like, hey, man, part of the reason is you're putting your neck out no matter what you do. People don't understand that, eh? But the most extraordinary thing is that there are some people who do tell the truth during yeah. these terrible regimes. Well, you know, in, in, when Lot and Abraham go to visit Sodom, Abraham bargains with God because God's going to take Sodom out. And uh, Abraham says, because God says, ah, the whole city's corrupt. And Abraham says, well, you mean, what do you mean, the whole city? You mean everybody? And God says, yeah, pretty much. And Abraham says, well, if there's 40 men there that aren't corrupt, will you spare the city? God says, yeah, okay. And then Abraham says, well, how about 30? And God says, you're pushing your luck, but yes. And then he says, 20. And finally, he bargains God down to 10. Right, and what that means is that, I think what it means is that if 10 people can still tell the truth, there's hope. Once you get below that, if it's none, well, then you're in hell, right? And then, then you know, the, the, what, the fire and brimstone will definitely rain down on your city. That's comedians, right? The comedians, they can tell the truth. And if there's, there doesn't have to be very many people who can still put their head up above the ter- parapet and say, Here's something funny and true, you know, it, very few people, so. Let's talk about some of those cases, that, and I think they're really interesting. Scholzenitzen is someone I'm, I'm sure you know a lot about. Maybe you can talk about what inspired him and what happened to him, but also... He in- took responsibility for his condition. You know, when he was in the gulag, Solzhenitsyn had every reason to be a victim because the reason he was in the gulag was because of Hitler and Stalin. <laughs> and so if you need someone to blame, man... Those are two credible perpetrators. But Solzhenitsyn asked himself, he saw two things. He saw in the prison camps that there were religious believers who conducted themselves nobly under impossible conditions. And that was really, that really made him think. And then he realized too that the the prisoners were running the camps. Right, so people were enslaved by their own slavishness. And then he started to think, well, maybe the way I lived my life had something to do with why I ended up here. And by doing that, he did what Dostoevsky recommended people do. Dostoevsky said, 
Every man is responsible not only for everything that happens to him, but for everything that happens to everyone else. Now, that's a crazy thing to say. But, but not exactly. And the reason for that is, if you followed the gospel injunction, let's say, if you were perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect, how much better would the world be? And the answer is, you don't know. Like, if you were the most glittering, shining example that you could possibly be, how much good could you do? And the answer, again, well, that's what your life's for, is to find that out. And so, the fact that things are shaking and rocking, how much your sin is associated with the fact that everything shakes and rocks is a completely open question. And I think the world is actually constituted so that everything that happens is every individual's fault. <laughs> you know, it's a, and that goes along with the idea that each person has a spark of the divine within them that shouldn't be hidden, that, that you hide to your peril and to the peril of the world. Now, it's a strange metaphysical idea, but that doesn't really bother me because life is no shortage of strange. So, even more perhaps extraordinary than the story of Scholz and Itzner, maybe you disagree with this, is the case of Hans and Sophie Scholl, the uh, siblings in Nazi Germany, they were only teenagers at the time, who were part of the White Rose movement and they printed these leaflets that were very much criticising the Nazi regime at a time when very, very, very few Germans were willing to do that. Mm-hmm. Very few German adults were willing to mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. But they were willing to do that. They were Christian. They had deep, deeply held moral beliefs. And the way that they died, they perhaps, people speculate, we don't know why they did it in the end, but they, they handed out these leaflets in a school and they did it in a very obvious way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the janitor at the school dobbed them in and sent them to the, the SS and, and, and they, were, they were killed very, very quickly by the, for a kangaroo court, court and everything else. Can you talk about their case? What makes them special? How did they, as children, react in a way that we would find so inspirational when so many of their adults around them failed in that sense? Well, tracing out the causal pathway to courage is not a simple thing, right? I mean, I've seen people who've led lives of bitter misery by any standard, who did everything they could to be good people despite that. You know, and if you, had they become psychopathic criminals, the sociologists would have said, well, of course, look at the conditions of their existence. But I've met people who've been brutalized beyond comprehension, who decided nonetheless that they would aim up, tell the truth. Now, why are people capable of that? That's an eternal mystery. You know, the Judeo-Christian doctrine is that we have free will. And I think that's true. Now, that doesn't mean I understand it. And I know that the relationship between free will and determinism is complex and that certain aspects of our action are explicable in a deterministic manner, but not in the final analysis. Partly the reason for that is that a deterministic organism can't compute the transforming horizon of the future. So, because the future is actually unpredictable. So a deterministic mechanism can't adapt to it. But in any case, people make their choices and God only knows how early you start doing that. It's very early. You know, Carl Jung, when he was talking about the Oedipal complex, so for Freud, the Oedipal complex in some ways was top down. 
right? So a mother would be a smothering mother, would offer too much dependence and overwhelm her child. But for Jung, it was more like a dance of agreement. And so imagine a six-year-old in bed, and maybe he has, I don't know, maybe he's a bit dehydrated, so he's got a headache. But really, he's upset because he didn't do his homework. And his mom comes downstairs and Maybe she's a bit lonesome because she's had a scrap with her husband for the 50th time that week. And she thinks, you know what, I wouldn't mind having the company. And the kid thinks, oh, I wouldn't mind not going to school today. And the kid says, Mom, you know, my head sort of hurts. And the mom says, well, dear, you know, maybe you don't need to go to school today. And the kid thinks, well, really, I don't want to go to school because I didn't do my homework. And the mom thinks, really, I want the kid home because I'm lonesome. And they both think, yeah, we just won't say that part out loud. Right, and so is the kid making a moral choice? Yeah, we start making moral choices. God only knows how early. Unbelievably early. You know, terrifyingly early, I would say. And, you know, why do some people end up courageous when so many don't? It's easier... It's easier not to be. You know, it's easier to cut corners and not bear your responsibility, not take the opportunities that manifest themselves to you, not pay for your sins in the moment. It's easier. And so there's a thousand or a million ways that you can be dishonest. But some people, you know, they're paragons of virtue. And we've argued about that forever. The Calvinists thought that was predestination, right? It's the grace of God. I don't know how to explain it. It looks like choice to me. You know, in the, in the famous picture of God reaching down to Adam and the Vatican on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, you see God reaching down and you see Adam reaching up, although not with a lot of effort, really, sort of languorously. But, but the, the existence is constituted in that manner, is that things offer themselves to us, but we have the choice about whether to receive them. And some people decide to stretch their hands out with a bit more effort and humility, and some people decide to take the easier path. Do, do you think it's in the human psyche to resist tyranny? And does the number of dissidents vary across different cultures? So say in Nazi Germany, were there fewer or more dissidents than in the Soviet Union? Did it vary in Maoist China? I don't, I don't think we know. Although I would say that in free societies, free societies are only free to the degree that everyone is a dissident. Because the freedom is maintained by people's trivial decisions to, to engage in truthful interactions, in trade and in the relationships with each other. And so free people are, are truth-speaking dissidents. There's no difference between that and being free. So it's when that starts to become silence that things start to tilt in the tyrannical or the chaotic direction. Now, it seems to me that the bedrock provided by the Judeo-Christian narrative corpus is a necessary precondition for that, not least because that corpus has as its central proposition that the spirit of the truth is the highest principle. Right? It's a proposition. And not only is that the highest principle, but that's core to our nature in the in the most in the ultimate sense and part of our divine obligation and 
I don't see how you can dispense with that notion without dispensing with the whole damn ballgame. Now, of course, that's what Nietzsche thought too, right? I mean, he believed that the consequences of the death of God would be nihilism and totalitarianism, or that we would discover our own values, but that the psychoanalysts pretty much killed off that theory. Are there any lessons that we can learn from those dissidents in the 20th century? Well, Solzhenitsyn, you know, it, it was a it was something he cited, I believe. One man who doesn't lie can bring down a tyranny. It's like, well, that's how everyone always brings down a tyranny. That's how you bring down the tyranny you use against yourself. That's how you bring down the tyranny you use against your wife. You tell the truth. So do you want to learn that lesson? Well, Solzhenitsyn put the boots to the Soviet Union. I mean, he wasn't alone, but <laughs> he was a major contributor, let's say. You know, Reagan was a contributor. Pope was a contributor. Those would be the main three, I would say. And, and that was in large part because they didn't lie. And falsehood cannot withstand the truth. Well, that's an axiom of faith. And it's an existential, it's a strange thing, eh? Because this is, again, why the notion that you can orient your life by mere attention to the facts is erroneous. It's like, well, is it the fact of the matter that if you lived your life by truth, that that would be optimal? And the answer is, you have to run the simulation to find out. It's not computable a priori. There's no way of deriving the moral before the story is told. And that's what you do in your life. That's the existential conundrum in some ways. That's what you're thrown into existence to determine. You know, how do you best make your way forward? Well, you pay your money and you take your chances. And this is something I'm trying to stress in this new book I'm writing is, you will have faith in something. Now, it might be a multitude of contradictory things, which just makes you a polytheistic, a polytheistic pagan, but there's no non-faith root. So, and then the question emerges, well, you know, what would a wise person best have faith in? And I think it's the truth, partly because how are you going to orient yourself to the world with a false map? Like, how is that going to work? It's not going to work. And you might think, well, I can falsify it now and then take a shortcut. It's like, uh, not without falsifying your relationship with yourself. Not without polluting the water from which, the well from which you draw water. It isn't how it works. Do you think that your work as someone who is very high profile, talking about these issues and being part of that so-called resistance to this woke tyranny to not find sorry for not using a better word than that but um has that been successful in inspiring others i mean and, and i'm interested in what you think about the success of these other resistance movements that, that have been around the world in canada there was the trucker protests mm -hmm. in in uh, the netherlands you know, yeah, there was the, the, farmers. the farmers in the yeah. uk we've we've had lots of um, you know radical feminists who are arguing yeah. against um some of the gender stuff so so do you do you think that your role has been in any way effective in that within those movements and do you think that those movements the, those movements themselves have been well, effective well i know that it's been effective to some degree within those movements because i've been in touch with the people who've organized those movements and they've told me that so um and you know, I spoke remotely at the truckers' protest and was in contact with the truckers while they were protesting, partly on the strategic front. And so, and the same was true in the Netherlands to a somewhat lesser degree. So, um, and then on the more 
on the broader public front, well, I know that this is successful. I mean, that's why my wife and I keep traveling because, you know, if you looked at my life online, you'd think that I was being harried to death nonstop by, you know, radical narcissistic psychopaths, but that actually only occurs online. Wherever I go in the world, it's not like that at all. I have one bad encounter in about 5,000 encounters and all the rest of them are hyper positive. People are extremely polite to me. They, they always behave the same way. I guess there's three categories. There's the person who's, who has been hurt at some point and who has recovered to some degree or is in the process of recovering, and that would be the bulk of the people that stop me. There would be the people who have been interested in what I say but feel compelled to tell me that they don't agree with everything I say, which, I, you know, I, that's sort of a response that always sort of flabbergasts me because it's like, well, what makes you think I would expect that and also why are you telling me that? You know, and I think it's because they want to play both sides against the middle. But that's a very small minority of people. I don't think more than about one in a hundred do that. And then, you know, now and then I run into somebody who's uh, usually has never listened to a thing I've said, but who thinks they know what I'm up to. Or maybe now and then someone who actually does and is not happy about it. But um, all the interactions I have with people are positive. And I know that it's had an effect because I've sold 10 million books. And so, and, you know, everywhere we go in the world, Tammy and I, we sell out arenas of three to 10,000 people. And I'm always talking about the same thing, which is really the adoption of responsibility in, in the fundamental sense. And I know that it's helped. And, and we can tell by going to these shows that it's helped because everyone says that it's helped, you know. And, and that's the testimony of hundreds of thousands of people now. Because so. there's two levels, isn't there, in terms of helping people. There's, on their, there's in their individual lives... Do they tell the truth? Do they lie? Yeah. And there's the political level of, can you change this policy, the vaccine mandates, etc. that I suppose the trucker protesters were less successful in? Oh, they were pretty successful. They were pretty successful. The, the COVID tyranny collapsed pretty precipitously after the trucker convoy, and they caused the collapse of the conservative leadership. And, you know, the conservatives in Canada at that point were pretty damn wishy-washy and playing both sides against the middle. And the new leader is a lot more, has a lot more of a spine by all appearances. We'll see to what degree he's handled to death by the political consultant types. But um, do you see a distinction between those two, those two oh, definitely. things, though? I mean, you know, the, the personal and the political, or are they linked in some way? Well, you can't be a real leader without having your act together on the personal front. And for me, the fundamental theater of action is the individual, which is why I'm a psychologist and not a political scientist or an economist or a sociologist or a politician, for that matter. Like, I think that, I mean, I was concerned throughout my whole life with the existence of malevolence. And that's a spiritual problem, malevolence, evil. And it's addressed at the individual level. And so that's always been my primary focus of concern. Once I learned that that really was a psychological issue rather than a political issue, I think you have to get your psychological house in order before you can be even remotely effective politically in, in the fundamental sense. Otherwise, you're just a tool of, of ideology or your own ego. And so I'm much more interested in operating at the psychological level than at the political level, although I do engage in some political discussion. You know, to, to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's also means, to some degree, to give Caesar his due, right? And we're political as well as psychological, and we have political responsibilities. And so, and it's necessary to translate 
the individual ethical ethos into appropriate policy. But you can't do that unless you can tell the truth. And you can't be a good leader unless you're capable of listening and, and you have the humility that would go along with that. So I've thought about a political career in Canada multiple times, but first of all, I don't speak French, and so that's a problem. I could learn, but I haven't. So that would be an impediment. And second, uh, I think I'm probably more effective doing what I'm doing than I could be in any political role in Canada. Isn't the ironic thing that throughout this interview, we've talked about dissidents, we've talked about resisting sort of woke tyranny, but the woke people see themselves as resistors. They see themselves as dissidents. Maybe you disagree with that, but during the 2016 Trump uh, election, there was this term, the resistance. That's how they saw themselves. So do you think they genuinely believe themselves to be resisting against this conservative elite? Well, I think some of them do and some of them don't. I mean, the real pathological types, they just use all of that as as maneuvering. Is it a coping mechanism? Well, no, I think that there's there's endless reasons for people to view themselves as victims. You know, I mean, we are in the land of corporate giants, right, in, in a major way, and they're multinational, and it isn't obvious at all that they act, they often act in, not in our best interests. I mean, that's certainly the case for the pharmaceutical companies, obviously, which is why their alliance with the radical left is quite the bloody miracle. Um, and so, and it is the case, as I said before, that in the capitalist systems, power and wealth accrue in the hands of fewer and fewer people. Now, that's true of every economic system. It's part of a much broader problem than the problem of capitalism. But it's easy for people to feel that they're put at an unfair disadvantage by extant power structures. And to the degree that those power structures are in fact corrupt and based on power, they have a valid complaint. Now, the question is, what do you do with that complaint? I mean, you could regard yourself as especially and narcissistically victimized and therefore deserving of some sort of special redress, or you could try to do something about it and also to understand your own role in propagating that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. power dynamic right well they hold themselves up against these vast evil concepts like white supremacy so mm-hmm. they say they're fighting white supremacy they're fighting this homophobia they're fighting this transphobia that is endemic and systemic across society across the elites do you see a comparison between that and how the soviet revolutionaries leninist types Um, believed themselves to be fighting against that elite and well if they did believe that I mean they were power mongers in the final analysis and I mean people like Lenin and Stalin just said whatever they needed to say to get as firm a grip on power absolute power as they could possibly manage but look one of the canonical variants of the universal hero myth is David and Goliath right and the reason for that is that the hero always does two 
two things. The hero confronts chaos and what is terrifying and generates order. That's one. That's the dragon fight, fundamentally. But the hero also slays the oppressive giant and rekindles society, right? So takes out the evil king. You see that in the, in the story of the Lion King, for example, right? And takes out the evil uncle, which is a very common variant. And the reason for that is that social hierarchies ossify and tilt towards power. And so that's also part of the critique of the left, right? It's, but the left always goes too far. The radicals, they say, it's nothing but power. It's like, no, it's not nothing but power. The fact that power corrupts the social enterprise and the psyche, for that matter, does not mean that power is the fundamental motivating principle. And that's actually of extreme import. I actually think play is the fundamental motivating principle, not power. I think the antithesis of power is play, and free play in particular. And it's a much more effective means of adaptation and much more enjoyable than the naked expression of power. But, but people are inclined in, an, in their attempts to manifest an unsophisticated heroism, that's a good way of thinking about it, to, you know, oppose the man, and then also to assume that the mere complaint, especially public, which is the equivalent of praying in public, by the way, just the mere public display of your rejection, your objection, constitutes sufficient moral effort. And of course, the idiot universities are absolutely complicit in putting that message forward. It's like, everybody should be an activist. It's like, really? That's your solution for the world's woes, is to train potentially competent young people to parade their whiny moral virtue publicly. Well, that's, there's nothing in that that's positive. Go out there and do something. Fix something. Fix something. Something real. And you know what? That's what I've been attempting to... That pathway is one I've been attempting to outline to my watchers and viewers, and lots of people are trying that, and it works. And then they're thrilled about it, because then they have something real. And that's way better. It's way better. So the... The propagandists always subvert the mythological to the ideological, always. And so there's always the ring of truth about their pronouncements, you know. I'm standing up against the man. Well, you should be. But, you know, the Judeo-Christian revolution, in, in many ways, if you think about it psychologically, was the notion that the tyrant you face most morally is the one that lurks in your heart, right? It's the removal of, the, it's the removal of malevolence from the external world. It's the continual removal of it. So as the idea of God progresses, you see the idea of God moving from the God whose manifestations in nature produce awe to the God whose voice is revealed within, um, primarily in the voice of conscience. So it's a psychologization of the idea of the divine. Same thing happens on the, on the malevolence front. It's like, well, what's evil? Well, a predator, a wolf, a snake, a raptor. Right, a dragon. That's an amalgam of all those things. That's evil. What's evil? Your tribal enemy. What's evil? Uh, your betraying brother. What's evil? Your self-betrayal. What's evil? The spirit of evil that lurks within you. Yeah, that's it. That's the most sophisticated representation. And you could also argue, and you know, it's a debatable point, but I think it's true that 
the way you fight external tyranny most effectively is by having defeated the tyrant that lurks within and then acting in accordance with that. Because then your words and your actions speak of your having overcome the devil and his temptations in the desert. You know, when Christ is in the desert, trying to conceptualize the nature of his kingdom, Satan appears to him and says, you could have the world and everything in it. You could be a political master, you could be a king, you could be the emperor, in in the worldly sense. And Christ thinks, what does he think? That's not good enough. (laughs) That's not right. Well, you can manipulate, maneuver on the power front, you know, and you can end up ruling over hell, as it turns out, if you do that, but you can end up ruling, or you can try to put your house in order, and then you inherit the kingdom instead of the world, you know, and people think that's a superstition, but that's because they don't understand what the story means. So there's this idea that you should lay up treasure in heaven where it doesn't rust, What does that mean? Well, let's say you and I have an honest conversation. We've done that before, right? You you interviewed me three years ago? Two years ago. Okay, and you didn't play any tricks. Okay, so what was the consequence of that? Well, it did well. Okay, what does that mean? That it did well. People were interested. Okay, and so it got a lot of viewers. And, and And what was the consequence for you? I suppose... It made me feel proud of my work. Okay. Oh, well, that's a good thing, right? To make you feel like you're doing something worthwhile. All right. And then when you asked me to do this interview, I said yes. All right. So, so why did that work? Well, it's because you comported yourself without treachery as a journalist. So you accrued, you accrued something genuine on the reputational front. Okay. Well, moths can't devour that and rust can't destroy it, right? Time doesn't decay it. Quite the contrary. You store your genuine treasure in your genuine reputation, right? Right. This is why you have to treat other people properly, like they're you, because they are in the, mo- in the most fundamental sense. Well, so that's part of the kingdom of heaven, is that it's immutable to earthly degradation. Well, what does that mean? Well, psychologically, it means that we figured out a long time ago that there's no better place to store future wealth than in your reputation, because then everybody wants to be around you and they want to interact with you and they offer you opportunities. And if you fall on hard times, they're there to help you because they trust you. It's like everyone I know that's truly successful. I'll, I'll give you an example. So I saw this in the professoriate continually. There were two types of professor, especially in relationship to the graduate students. There were the professors who had time for their graduate students and who were extraordinarily generous with their ideas and with publication credit. And so these were people, you'd go talk to them. My supervisor, Robert Peel, was one of these. He always had time, and he was never less than forthcoming with his creative ideas. And then if we published, he would assign credit where it was due and put himself appropriately in the background when that was requisite. So what did that mean? Well, first of all, it meant that He was a never-ending font of ideas because he'd give them away and that indicated to himself that he had faith in the source of his ideas and the reward that he received by giving away his ideas produced the flourishing of the system within him that produced ideas. See, because what happens is that if 
there's a part of you, your neural architecture, that can generate ideas. Well, if you reward that, it grows. So if you give away your ideas and you get positive feedback as a consequence, that well will deepen and, and broaden, right? And so, what, how could that possibly be to your disadvantage? It's very different than a narrowly self-serving, this was my goddamn idea, I'm going to be first author on the paper, and don't you dare steal my idea. Well, those people, I just saw them over time, they'd get to the point where they literally wouldn't have an idea. And then they'd even be grasping more tightly to the ideas that they had. Well, that's not, that's not a wise strategy. Well, that's going back to the idea of the dissidents versus the sort of masses who, who were able to accept and willing to accept that, that lie that the regime uh, perpetuated. And I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated, and I'm sh- I know that you are as well, with those people who chose the completely opposite path to what you just mentioned, i.e. the evil people, the tyrannical people, the people who headed these regimes, the, pe- the Stalins, the Hitlers, the Maos. There is this idea in history of great men, mm-hmm. the great men of history. Do you think that this theory is legitimate? Do people make these huge influences on the societies around them? Or do you believe in the alternative theory, which is that they are working merely within the bounds of the masses, within the bounds of the sort of flow of history, if you like? Well, I would say that a a great man in some ways, gives voice to the, the present. So there's a dynamic relationship between that greatness and the social surround. But it, it's certainly true, as far as I'm concerned, that everything is moved forward as a consequence of individual effort on every front. That's why I think the individual is the right level of conceptualization and analysis. And so, are there great individuals? Well, obviously. And they're on the forefront of development, right? They have the... And, you know, one of the great advantages of our communicative ability is that we can all share in the benefits of that stellar edge adaptation in all directions simultaneously. You know, so that's a great thing. And I think that people are called upon to act in accordance with that conceptualization. I think everyone has it within them, has something. I think everyone has something, for lack of a better term, divine about them, and that they have something to bring into the world that no one else can bring in, that without which the world is lesser, and, and, and often profoundly lesser. So, that, along with that divine value that we have, we all have a divine responsibility. And the upside of that is that that's where meaning is to be found. Right. This is another thing that I've been successful at communicating to young men in particular. It's like, well, why be responsible? Because it's meaningful. Well, why do you need that? Well, you're going to suffer there, buddy. You better have something to rely on when the storms come. Or they'll take you out. Or you'll wish you were dead. We're all fascinated in these individuals who have changed and moved history, I think. You, know, you can walk in any city around the world and you'll see statues of these great men, whether they're local people, national heroes, figures, or even more evil figures like Lenin and Stalin. Mm -hmm. And as someone who's interested in history, as someone who loves reading biographies, reading about people like Bismarck, who were 
utterly demonic in their actions in, incredible humor i don't know how much i don't know how, if you studied him but you should if you haven't um i i get the sense that the great men of history that era may have ended and you look at the leaders today and you just see yeah, mediocrity nice. so that's a good example so maybe maybe you Rogan. disagree with me yeah no they're still around there's lots of them you know no they're still around they may not be the political leaders, but they may be in other areas. So you say Musk and Rogan, those, those are two very specific yeah. people. Yeah, I've met lots of great people, you know, who, who are shouldering their weight and doing it properly. And, and thank God for that. Yeah, politically, less so. Why are we churning out these leaders like Macron, like Biden, like Trudeau? What's, what's, where does this phenomenon come from? Because they seem so uniform across the West. Probably because our methods of communication were unable to distinguish wheat from chaff for a long, long time. I think that might be changing with long-form political dialogue because it's a lot harder to hide if you have to talk for two and a half hours. So, you know, the soundbite, the, the, the TV in particular lent itself to, to a kind of brainless, momentary glibness and attractiveness, right? And partly because TV... Well, it had a very narrow bandwidth. It was extremely expensive per minute. Um, everything had to be reduced to a sound bite. And it really stressed a certain kind of physical attractiveness. And so none of that helped at all. Um, but those, you know, that period of time is probably coming to an end. We'll see. It's interesting because social media has really shone a light on our politicians in a way that we haven't experienced in the past so people like bismarck people like caesar these were mysteries to the general mm -hmm. public people did not know what was going on in their private lives they barely knew anything about them beyond what their propaganda was telling them or beyond what the press at the time or whatever the the, the oral communication um was telling them about these people so do you think that 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 is one area where there's been a huge difference between the past and now, and where we can see our leaders in a very different way. Do you think that sort of bubble has been burst? Well, we'll see, we'll see. I, 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 I suspect it might have been, because I do think, like I've seen over the last two years, in particular three years, particularly in Canada and the US, that many political types are turning away from the legacy media and its emphasis on appearance to the new media and its ability to deliver content and I think it will differentially reward people who are the real thing. It's very hard to be fake for two and a half hours on YouTube in a spontaneous conversation, you know, and I think the people who are inclined to be fake won't even do those interviews because they'll just exhaust themselves. So I think that's a very positive development. Now, you know, the sensorial tyrants might have a word or two to say about that. I mean, YouTube took down my interview with Robert Kennedy, which I'm very unimpressed by, given that it was, they did that during an active presidential campaign. And I think that was a traitorous act. So, but, but, nonetheless, you know, there's lots of other avenues for communication and the censors haven't been able to shut down genuine dialogue and in, in fact quite the contrary i mean rogan in particular he's a fascinating phenomenon because he did what he did 
pretty much by himself, right? He's got his producer. There's two of them. And all Rogan did was ask stupid questions, you know? But for me, you're as interesting as Rogan, I suppose. I mean, I'm 23. I was a young man when I read your books. You know, you may have guessed, but I, you know, I think you um, changed my life in a way in terms of what the, the advice that you were giving. And, and, it, and I, as I said, I find individuals fascinating. So I want to ask a question about you for just for a moment. Um, since 2016, how do you think your life has changed? How do you think you have changed? How, how has your um, outlook towards the world changed? Well, my life was flipped upside down in many ways because I had to give up my professorship and my research enterprise and I'd put a lot of time and effort into those and I, would, I liked doing them and I was good at it. And uh, I, particularly the research enterprise collapsed entirely. Now, I've been able to duplicate the teaching enterprise on a much broader scale so, and that's been extraordinarily useful and fulfilling and much better. So there's no net loss there. But the research enterprise, that was a real loss. And then my clinical practice became impossible too. And that really still irritates the hell out of me because I knew those people extremely well. And we were getting places. You know, we had a real relationship, sometimes one that had lasted a decade. And it just blew up. Plus, you know, the College of Psychologists has been on my case ever since 2016, and they're costing me $90,000 a month in legal bills, which I'm also not very impressed by. And, uh, and every single allegation they've brought against me uh, is not only unwarranted, but absurd and procedurally incompetent to a degree that's almost unimaginable. So that was annoying. Um, there were a lot of harrowing experiences that went along with what's unfolded over the last seven years, particularly in the first four or five years, because every week, month, something like that, there'd be some new scandal, generally fulminated by some journalist who was narcissistic, whose sole goal in interview was to trap me into saying something that would demolish my reputation to their renown. And every time that happened, Things were unstable for weeks or months even, but it reversed. And now we've learned that it reverses. So it's much less worrisome now. And so that's one thing. That's one way I'm different is that I know now that if you're careful and you get attacked and you hold fast, that the net outcome will be positive if you can tolerate the intermediary disruption. So that's a very useful thing to know. So now if, you know, something, someone scurrilous says something potentially reputation devastating, my family has learned just to watch and wait and watch it flip around. Because it is the case that the people who went after me most pathologically did me the most good. And that isn't something, I didn't know that. I didn't know that's how the world worked. That, and that that's part of the reason why you can welcome assault. You know, because you need to know what your attitude is, right? You, you need to know what your attitude is towards tragedy. And your attitude towards tragedy is that you should bear it with hope. Because, well, what else are you going to do? You're going you're gonna to descend into the pit of victimhood? I mean, even if, 
the world has been stacked up unfairly on top of you, well, construing yourself as a helpless victim and becoming bitter and resentful and then murderous and then genocidal, that's not helpful. It just turns tragedy into hell. So you're called upon to maintain faith and hope in the face of the existential catastrophe of existence. And then with regards to malevolence, it's, well, you know, do you embrace your enemy? I suppose if you were a master, you could do that. So there are advantages of suffering. There are ways of... (laughs) There are ways of making it a hell of a lot worse than it has to be, at least. You know, advantages of suffering, that's a tough one, you know. I was very, very ill and in a level of pain that I didn't even know was possible for like two and a half years. And we're talking about a physical illness for people who aren't aware of your... Yeah, yeah. And at any point during that time, if there would have been an off switch, I would have just flicked it. And, you know, you could say, well, did you learn anything? And the answer is yes. But I would also say, I think I could have learned it in less than two and a half years. You know, I'm very leery of saying suffering justifies itself in the wisdom that it produces. I think there are wise and unwise ways of responding to suffering. And I think that it can take you down a peg or two and force you to recalibrate. But I think it's a... You have to be cautious in making the hard and fast rule that, you know, all suffering redounds to our benefit. Do you feel you've become more cynical and pessimistic around, about the world, if that was possible? No, I don't think so. I mean, I'm more struck dumb by amazement with regards to the depths of malevolent stupidity that are possible. The comical malevolent stupidity is a never-ending source of, like, surreal amazement. But, you know, by the same token, I've met some great people who are doing great things, and I think, I don't think falsehood can triumph over truth. So I'm not pessimistic at all, or not more pessimistic. I mean, I've always had a rather dark view of things. I mean, I studied atrocity for decades before anything blew up around me on the political scene. You know, and we could talk about that for a bit, too. I mean, you know, people sometimes tell me, you know, they laud me in relationship to my bravery. And I don't really appreciate that in some ways. It's not like I take offense to it. That isn't what I mean. I just don't think it's right. It's like when Bill C-16 came up, people wondered why I made such a big deal out of it. And the reason for me, well, first of all, I knew what it was going to do. And it's done exactly what I knew it would do. In, in, in the detail. I knew it would produce a psychological epidemic. I said that to the Senate. I could see it just as clearly as could be. And I knew that it was part and parcel of the process of the restriction of speech. And so those were the grounds on which I objected to it. And you might say, well, why did I object to it? And the answer is, I'm way more afraid of losing my tongue to the tyrant than of anything the government or the woke radicals could possibly do to me because I know how people get corrupted. And if you have any sense at all, if you know how people get corrupted, you'll be way more afraid of that than anything else. And so for me, it's, well, why do I say what I think? Because I know that the alternative is hell. 
And it's not like I think that. I know that. Like, I know it as much as you could possibly know anything. I watched that in my clinical practice for decades. I saw it unfold in my personal life in all sorts of ways. I see it work in the political world. You lie at your peril. You have no idea what you'll pay for that. And what everyone else will, too. It isn't just that you take yourself to hell as you drag everyone along with you. Not good. Not good. As individuals, we all have to make choices about what we talk about, obviously, online, for example. And I may have opinions that I can't share because, let's say, I would lose my job or I would be arrested or I would get completely cancelled. So is that me lying by, by not revealing certain opinions that I have? Or am I just being practical and strategic? Well, you don't have to say what you think about absolutely everything every second. You have a right to privacy. And it's reasonable to be discreet. I don't think you should make unnecessary enemies. You know? Um, And then after that, well... If you falsify what you believe explicitly... That's a big mistake. Like I would say, you can make a blanket, you can just lay a blanket prohibition over that. Do not lie. And what the, there's a de, I could define that. Do not say things that you know, according to your own standards of truth, are false. Right? That circumvents all the moral relativistic arguments. It's like everyone knows the difference between saying something they believe to be true, and something they know to be false. Okay, so don't do that. Now, there's going to be edge cases when you don't know. It's like, well, maybe those are places you should, you know, explore carefully or just shut the hell up about. And then there's the more complex situations where you could say something, but you believe that it might be unwise under the circumstances. And I would say, well, those are very complex moral cases. So you might, you might say, well, look, I'm a teacher and I can't oppose the school board because I have four kids and, and my wife stays at home and we're solely dependent on my income. So it's the duty I owe my wife and my children compared to the duty I owe my profession and my society. And that's a real conflict of duty. It's a genuine conflict of duty. And the ethical pathway forward is not crystal clear in the manner that someone could specify from the outside. Okay, so if I have someone like that in my clinical practice, I say, well, look, you're going to be called upon to make very fine moral judgments. So you better make yourself into the person that can do that. And how do you do that? Well, you do that, first of all, by ceasing lying, right? Because then you sharpen your vision, and then you'll be able to be in a situation where you can decide in a given circumstance which pathway forward is the most appropriate morally. Now, part of the reason this is a crucial point is that part of the reason that you should be careful with what you say is because, well, there's no difference between speaking and thinking. And if you muddy the conceptual waters and you find yourself in a tight spot, you'll be too blind to think. And then you'll be in trouble. And, you know, and not just the sort of trouble that can cause death, that trouble too, but worse. So if you know that, and, and you've thought that through. It's like, oh, I see, I can't lie because if I lie, I falsify the process that enables me to abide by the truth. When the challenge arises, you think, oh, 
that seems rather self-evident. I should be careful. Because, or else. And I know that. I, I know that. And I also know that if you are careful with what you say, especially that you don't lie, but also that you practice saying what you have to say when the time is right, then your vision gets sharper and the world improves around you and opportunities multiply and, and everything works out for you much better, even though it's complex but, and for everyone else much better. That's how the world works. In the pursuit of truth, and I suppose in the pursuit against injustice, do you think that people can get caught up in rabbit holes? And I'm just going to expand on that, what I mean by that. We've just made a documentary about Canada. There are so many things going on here, as you know, that are terrible and should be uh, investigated and um, fought back against. But if I spent my entire life and every single day investigating these terrible injustices, injustices around the world, mm-hmm. I would, I'd, be in, I'd go insane. I mean... Mm-hmm. We've got these phones next to us right now, and we look at Twitter. I don't know what you do, but I look at Twitter all the time, and, mm-hmm. I, and this can lead to a certain amount of depression and, 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 and anger, really. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember during the pandemic, my granddad, he was in a... a his wife, my grandmother, was, who's sadly passed away, but she was in a home, and he was by himself for the first time in almost in 60 years, and they were separated, and he was alone. And um, I remember he was watching the news all the time because mm-hmm. he was interested. He's a curious guy, but it was making him severely depressed. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, don't watch the news. Don't do it. And, I th- and it's the same thing with Twitter. You know, if you're obsessively looking at this stuff, do you think there's a danger that you can overexpose yourself to these things, even though that these things are terrible and they're going on? But what, what I'm, I suppose what I'm trying to say is, do we all need a bit of a break from uh, social media and from looking at well, these things? You know, with your grandfather, you you put your finger on something particularly relevant. He was alone. Well, so part of the way we buttress ourselves against idiosyncratic obsession, let's say, is by surrounding ourselves with other people. You know, someone you have an intimate relationship with, your family, your circle of friends, your business compatriots, because they will, in balancing all those things, you can find a kind of harmony right? And like a musical harmony. And that would be a state of play, actually. And, and that will help you decide when you veered too far, you know, in one obsessive direction so that, you know, you're a one-trick pony or, a, or, or you're, you're just, you're beating the same drum over and over. And par- partly you buttress yourself against that by putting yourself in a broader community so that the people in that community tap you into alignment continually. So, so mental health is ill-conceived. And the psychologists are partly to blame for that because we think of mental health as something that's subjective and internal. But it's not. It's the harmonious balancing of a network of relationships to yourself but also to other people. And it's the harmony that's the health. And so you can veer off in a disharmonious direction and it's counterproductive. You know, and you, you can tell it's counterproductive even because doing so makes you less able to act positively against those things that are disturbing you, right? So you have to reserve your strength. That's another reason why perhaps you can't say everything you think all the time. It's like, well, you have to prioritize. And, and you know, how do you prioritize? Well, that's 
That's what a religious narrative is for, fundamentally, because a religious narrative is a narrative of prioritization. First things first. And well, that's wisdom, and that's complicated. So, yes, you can fall down rabbit holes. And especially when you're attached to information sources and you're kind of an information omnivore as well, you know. So, And I'm just curious as to whether you think that you ever dabble down a rabbit hole too much. I mean, I know for me, taking a break from Twitter can be one of the most you know brilliant relaxing things I can do and particularly in somewhere like Canada where you can go out on a hike and you can just see nature and it's just you know the, the contrast between that and sitting at my desk scrolling on yeah Twitter. well I think probably uh so I derive most of the information I get um from two sources three sources I suppose books because I read a lot of books and the podcasts I do and they're usually associated with the book and then Twitter keeps me abreast of the the goings-on of the culture, so it's news. Can that become too much? Well, yes. And am I susceptible to that? Probably, particularly when I'm tired, you know, because you're less able to regulate, or I am less able to regulate the pull of information if I'm tired. And Twitter, of course, feeds you information that's, it's, it doesn't end. A book at least ends. A newspaper, you can read the whole thing. Twitter, it's like the newspaper that never ends. And it's the algorithm that's tailored to you. It's not just a newspaper that anyone can, can read. It's specifically for you and what you look at and what you like and what you read. Yeah, well, Twitter, Twitter is a little better than, than other, some other social media platforms in that regard because you pick the people you follow. So, but, you know, you're pointing to what's essentially the danger of being open to information. I mean, one of the advantages to being conservative is conservatives put up boundaries, right? They're, they tend not to be flooded by an excess of information. People who are more, who hire an openness to experience, who tend more to be liberal, by the way, they're very pro-information. But the problem with information is that too much information is indistinguishable from chaos. So, and, and that can destabilize you. And it is tricky. These things are very tricky to manage and they're designed to be tricky to manage. So, you know, we're all learning as we go. And have I made mistakes on that front? No doubt. It's easy to go on a Twitter binge. It's another difference, again, from, from perhaps you in the past when Twitter didn't exist even, you know, back in the 1990s when you were writing your first book. Um, can you see that difference? How has that, that manifested itself, you know, the Twitter age versus the, I suppose, book age? Well, for a long time, I didn't pay much attention to the news. Like, I probably didn't watch news to any great degree from, like, 1985 to, I don't know, whenever these things came along, you know, what's that, 20 2010 or something, yeah. And I, I didn't really suffer from not watching the news. I mean, I read The Economist. I read certain magazines that sort of kept me abreast of the macro trends, let's say, and that seemed to be sufficient. Now, it's tricky. Twitter's very tricky because... I do run this podcast and, you know, I do two a week and that's a lot. And I have to pick the right people for the conversations. And a lot of that's a consequence of using Twitter, you know, because I can see what's hot and what needs to be addressed. And so to the degree that I've become a journalist, which is to quite a degree, given the podcast, Twitter isn't optional. It's how I sample the culture. Now, you know, is it a biased sample? Probably, but... It's as unbiased as I can manage to make it. And I do a lot of research reading and still an awful lot of writing. So, 
I want to finish the interview, if you, if you don't mind, on one last topic, and that is the United Kingdom. We're obviously a British paper. One of my favourite videos from you yeah, was why funny. I love... You guys are over here doing a documentary on Canada. Well, it seems the Canadian media doesn't want to do it. So, hey, man, uh, Canada is a way more peculiar place than Canadians think. And, and it's, it's the fact that Canada has become an object of international interest is like, when the hell did that happen? You know the world's upside down when Canada when Canadian politics are interesting. It's like, what the hell's going on? And I think that people can see how the degeneration of our nation into a banana republic outside of Canada far more accurately than people inside Canada understand. People inside Canada have no idea what a devastating blow to Canada's international reputation the seizure of the bank accounts was. They just don't know. They think, oh, they deserved it. It's like, you have no idea what that signaled to the rest of the world. Right? That Canada did that. Yeah. Canada, of course, was born out of the British Empire and those British colonists, a lot of them Scottish, actually, and Irish, not just English, who were coming out to the frontiers and uh, expanding that empire. What do you think was special about Britain? Was it special and Why? It probably did the most effective job of any modern state of translating the narrative structure of the Judeo-Christian biblical corpus into policy. And it did that partly explicitly in its parliamentary structure, but it also did it even more wisely with its common law tradition. I mean, English common law is a complete bloody miracle. Bottom-up law. I mean, God, what a, what a phenomenal accomplishment. And so, yes, I think that makes Britain singular and worthy of tremendous admiration. You know, these, these, the, the, the anti-oppression people in the, in the U.S. who decry the U.K. colonialists in particular for their oppressive policies are spitting in the face of the only political system that ever successfully controlled slavery, and not only practically because of the British Navy on the high seas, but also metaphysically and politically. Like the British, it was the British who decided, hands down, that slavery was wrong, and then did something about it. And that was documented historical reality. The reason for that is because the British parliamentarians were called to their conscience by English evangelical Christians, essentially, that Wilberforce in particular, who said, by the doctrines that you claim to regard as holy, this should not stand, and therefore can't. And Britain did that, you know, and the Brits as well, even in relationship to the empire. It was at the same period of time that the Brits were already deciding that colonial rule in India had to be aimed towards the emancipation of the Indian people and their elevation as responsible individuals to the realm of sovereign citizenship. And that's an amazing thing for an empire to conclude. You know, and you can be cynical about the lag of time it took, but it didn't take that long. And India's doing pretty damn well. Um, You know, and I think that the British bequested their gift of governance all around the world. And that's not fluke. And... They deserve credit for it, and it would be a catastrophe for Great Britain to 
fall down the rabbit hole of self-abnegation and not realize that it's an amazing place. I mean, there's no U.S. without the U.K. I mean, the Americans like to think that, you know, the tradition of freedom in the U.S. is the American Revolution. It's complete bloody nonsense, and we knew that in Canada because we knew that what the Americans did in their revolution was fight for the rights of Englishmen, right? And that is what they did. And that doesn't take away from the American Revolution, but it links what happened in the U.S. to, you know, a historical progression that had gone on for centuries before that, and that was unstoppable, right? And that was the revelation in the political space of the Judeo-Christian revelation, fundamentally, as far as I can tell. The American Revolution is fascinating because you had those amazing people who wrote the Constitution, the Founding Fathers, who were, make, who were having these debates about English common law versus that French revolutionary mm-hmm. philosophy. You've got Thomas Jefferson, you have Hamilton, and this is the contrast, isn't it? Or do you agree with me that this is the contrast between that English system that, as you just praised upon, and that French revolutionary system throughout history? And do you think those are the two sort of splits in history? It, 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 that, that's a huge part of the split, and that part of it is, and that's, I think, the French degenerate in the direction of Luciferian intellectual presumption. Top down. The elite can determine rationality can rule. Well, first of all, rationality is, makes a very, very bad master. A very good servant, but a very bad master. Yeah, and, and a lot of the centralizing tendency that's characteristic of the EU can be laid at the foot of the same spirit that motivated the French, the French revolutionaries. And we all know how that ended, and not well. And so... You know, I see the French Revolution in itself as a reflection of something deeper, which is the continuing manifestation of the spirit of Cain, let's say. It's a resentful intellect, essentially. And it's the same spirit that produces the Tower of Babel in the biblical corpus. And um, this overweening intellectual pretension and, 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 and worship of the, of the self-serving intellect, um, that... That's a very, very old problem, much older than even the French Revolution, but it's certainly a manifestation of the same thing. Whereas the Brit system is bottom-up, you know, and the respect for the common man isn't an empty phrase in Great Britain. And you can tell that when you go there. I mean, I love that country. It's a great country. It, it's a country that's suffering from far too much guilt at the moment, um, which I suppose in some ways is even a testament to its moral soundness, you know. But... But nonetheless, unfortunate. You see the same thing in the Netherlands. You know, I went and talked to a lot of intellectuals in the Netherlands, and they say, well, we're not even sure we have a culture. You know, when I come to the Netherlands from Canada, and I think, I don't even, I can't see for a second how you could even possibly presume that. What the hell do you mean? You should come to northern Alberta if you want to see a place that doesn't have a culture. It's 50 bloody years old, you know, scraped out of the bush yesterday. Not this amazing, well, Amsterdam in particular, in the Netherlands, it's like the UK. It's a complete bloody miracle, that country. That's why it's so upsetting to see what's happening on the Dutch farmer protest front, although they may get the last laugh yet. So, Dr. Jordan Peterson, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for coming over here and talking to me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.